Well, trusting in God for his help, then let's uh, turn to the passage of Scripture we read in the Acts of the Apostles and chapter 26. And uh, reading at verse 24, where we read us, Paul thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Now over the uh, past few weeks, we've been considering some famous people in Scripture uh, who only appear very briefly. They're not, of course, famous as such uh, because they appear in the Bible, although they are now. That's the reason they are now famous. But they were originally famous just because of who they were and the position they occupied in their own day. But they're famous now because their paths crossed with the Apostle Paul and they had an opportunity uh, to hear the gospel from his lips. As I've said several times, if you would have told them that these were the most significant occasions in their lives, they would find that very, very hard to believe. The fact is that these people, by and large, are now just mere footnotes in history. They are either recorded in secular history or their names are uh, engraved in stone, uh, but they are immortalized for us in the pages of the Bible because of how they responded to the gospel. At the end of the day, that is the most important thing about them, and therefore the opportunities they had to hear the word of God were the most important opportunities they ever had in their lives. Now, on this occasion, we find two of these people in one. We have Festus, who is the new procurator of Judea, and we have King Agrippa II, who is the last king in the dynasty of Herod. I don't need to say too much about him tonight, because God willing, we'll consider him uh, next Lord's Day. Now, this uh, meeting here between Festus and Agrippa on one hand, and Paul on the other, takes us back, really, to where we finished uh, last Sabbath night and Paul's appearance before the procurator Felix. Now, you'll remember as Paul preached before Felix, uh, you'll remember how Felix trembled hearing the gospel. Uh, he, w he was genuinely moved by it. He was uh, terrified of it, particularly when Paul reasoned to him concerning the judgment to come. But those feelings wore off, and when Felix then would bring Paul out before him, it was a view to trying to get him to bribe him for his release. As I mentioned to you last week, Felix was notorious for that. Now, that bribe never materialized. Paul was too upright in heart. Uh, he didn't need to break the law of God in any way at all. And uh, he knew that God's will for him was to remain there in custody. And however long that lasted, he bore that patiently. Although, amazingly, it lasted for two years. Some people say that it was a flaw in the Roman system of justice, that a person could end up being kept in custody for a very long time at the procurator's uh, behest. And here he is, a fool Two years, and I'm sure he wonders at God's providence in that. Uh, he, he has a, a, an intention to visit Rome. He, he desires to visit Rome. And I wonder at this time if he's beginning to realize that it's perhaps as a prisoner that he will go to Rome. Certainly that is how he will go to Rome, and perhaps he is beginning to realize that just now. Now, it's a terrible thing to be two years in custody when a case has already fallen apart. Uh, we live in a country where the judicial system is falling apart itself. Uh, people forget easily that in the Old Testament, one of the great requirements in the Old Testament law was that cases be dealt with speedily and uh, that people would not be left 
um, in a kind of limbo, not knowing one thing or another because of the slow uh, grinding of the wheels of justice. That makes people suffer, even when they're innocent, for a long period of time. The Old Testament law says not so. There should be a speedy resolution of cases. And these things are serious. And when people move away from the precepts and principles uh, that God has given to us, there are, there's always a price to pay. And there's a huge number of innocent people suffering because of the injustice of delay in proceedings. Paul has done nothing wrong. He has been found on a first hearing to have done nothing wrong, but he's two years in prison. That's not easy on his faith. We need to remember that. Um, but his faith is strong, and he trusts the Lord that the Lord knows what he's doing. And there are so many times, friends, when you will have to do that, and myself too, when there's a perplexing providence that we're in, and we've no idea why it has come, but we have to accept that it is the Lord, and as Eli said, let him do what seemeth right unto him. So he bore it, and he bore it patiently. And after two years, Felix leaves office in AD 60, and he is replaced by a new procurator, this man Festus. Now, less is known about Festus than about any of the other characters that we've looked at. All that we do know is that he was just two years in this post and he was the only one who left there with a good reputation. He was a hard worker and by and large he was fair. Now the minute he arrived in his headquarters in Caesarea he only stays there three days before he immediately visits Jerusalem. He knows that whatever the capital is, Jerusalem is the real capital. It is the nerve centre of the Jewish people, and he goes there on a 10-day visit. And the Jewish authorities, although there are many things going on, there's only one issue that they really want dealt with. The church is growing, it's growing very fast, and they want that stopped. And the man most responsible for that, as far as they're concerned, is the Apostle Paul. He is in a prison cell in Caesarea, but as long as he remains alive, they have a problem. So the first issue they raise before him is what is to become of this man. And as we saw a few weeks back in connection with uh, Gallio and Corinth, they try and take advantage of a new man on the scene. And they try and flex their muscles uh, to get Festus to do what they want. So they ask Festus to bring Paul back from Caesarea to Jerusalem, so that they, as a Sanhedrin, a Jewish authority, can put him on trial a second time according to Jewish laws, practices and procedures, and they can deal with him as he should have been dealt with from the beginning. Uh, the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, Luke, tells us that the, the plot to kill Paul was still in place. Their intention was, while Paul was in transit from Caesarea to Jerusalem, that they would arrange for him to be killed. Now, the thing about Festus is that, in one way anyway, he was no fool. In a minute, we'll see that in another way he was. But in this way, he wasn't. He refuses the Jewish request, and he says to them that the only thing he will agree to is another hearing in Caesarea. So they're to send their best men, if they want, to argue the case against Paul a second time in Caesarea. And after ten days, he returns to the capital, and a few days later, there's a second formal hearing. And it's recorded for us in the scripture. It's before our reading. You can read it sometime later yourself. After the hearing is finished, Festus, like Felix before him, knows that there's no case to answer. <coughs> But again, like Felix before him, he doesn't want to upset the Jews. He wants to appease them. And at the formal hearing, he turns to Paul, essentially, and he says, Paul, will you accept this? Will you accept it if I return you to Jerusalem so that you can be tried by the Sanhedrin, but I will be present myself at the trial? Now, the minute Paul hears that, he knows that he's not going to get justice 
from this man. He understands that he possibly wants to give him justice, but he knows that he doesn't have the strength to do it. And so Paul utters the famous appeal to Caesar. And he had a right to appeal to Caesar because, of course, he was a Roman citizen. And the Roman citizens had that privilege of being able, as a final court of appeal, to take their matter to the presence of uh, Caesar himself. Most of you will know that Paul was uh, given the privilege before God of appearing before Nero twice. It seems that on the second occasion uh, he was beheaded with a sword. But I think it more than likely that Nero, who was renowned really as a monster, I think it's more than likely that he heard the gospel uh, directly from the Apostle Paul, which is indeed a very solemn thought. But Paul realises that there's no justice here, and he appeals to Caesar. Possibly at that point, Paul knows that it is as a prisoner he will go to Rome. And um, that will mean that whenever he witnesses in Rome, it will be essentially with chains. That may be a disappointment to him on one level, but... And on another level, we often read in the Bible, well, Paul himself came to the conclusion that when he was weak, he was strong. And he realized that there were lots of things that he had to pass through in life. But he says that God brought him through these things in order to to bless the gospel through him. It was in his weakness that the strength of God was magnified. Somehow the more small and insignificant this man appeared in himself, the greater the power of God that was at work through him, in the words that he spoke. We, we all need to realize that. It's, um, it's through our trials and tribulations that, that God tends to make us a blessing. That is normally the way that he works through us. That's not the abnormal way. It is the normal, the normative way, in our weakness, in our trials and tribulations. And uh, Paul was to discover that even more. Now, Festus here has a, has a difficulty because he's got to allow this appeal to go ahead. But his difficulty lies in this, and this is quite amazing. This shows you how justice has always been a kind of perverted thing. There was a saying in Gaelic, The law can be straight or pretty crooked. The problem Festus has is that he's got to send to the emperor in Rome a summary of the case and why he is sending it to the emperor. And that's important because uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't, as it were, allow everything to go ahead. And this was one way in which there was a kind of check on people. Tell us why you're sending this, why you're referring it, why you're putting it up to the emperor. And Felix, Festus, sorry, openly confesses that he doesn't know. He doesn't know how to formulate a charge because he doesn't understand what's going on. But he wants to please the Jews. Help comes to him in the form of a state visit from the last king of the Jews, King Agrippa II. Um, It was the custom of the Jewish king to visit the new procurator every time a procurator was appointed. And here he comes with his sister, Berenice. I'll say something about her too later, or next Lord's Day. The Bible tells us here that he's well-versed. He's an expert in Jewish beliefs and customs. So Festus takes the opportunity to tell him about the problem that he's got with Paul. And Agrippa says, well, actually, I'd like to hear the man myself. And so on the following day, there is an opportunity to hear the apostle. Interestingly, it's on a state occasion, which the Bible tells us was full of pomp or pageantry, if you like, in chapter 25. and verse 23, we read that on the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, that's display, pageantry, and entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. The word commanders, interestingly in the Greek, means a commander of a thousand. Now, centurion was a, a military commander of a hundred. The word used here is a military commander of a thousand. 
It's in the plural, so there was more than one of them. Caesarea was a big city. Uh, the headquarters of the Roman procurator was a big, important place. And this was a big, important event, the visit of the Jewish king to the new procurator. There's pomp and there's pageantry. And part of the whole proceeding of the state visit was an opportunity to hear this strange case. Festus explains it and Paul is summoned. And as he stands before them, Agrippa waves his hand and gives him permission to speak. I wonder, friends, what Paul himself makes of all that, especially the pomp and the pageantry part. When it says that they appeared, Agrippa and Berenice, with great pomp, the word in the Greek is phantasia, from which you get fantasy, phantom, it means a kind of display and a show. And how appropriate that is. You see it on state occasions. We saw it recently, even with the events that are admittedly important in themselves, like the coronation and the funeral of the monarch and so on. It's remarkable how much pomp and pageantry is associated with it. But the word means a fantasy and a phantom. A phantom is something that appears for a moment, vanishes away. A fantasy is a figment of the imagination, something that comes in and goes away. That's really the kind of pomp that's going on here. And you know, when the, when the Christian sees this kind of pomp, the Christian recognizes that this is the world doing its best. This is the world appearing as best or as, as well as the world can appear showing itself off. It's what the Apostle John calls the pride of life. Paul tells us that all that is in the world and the fashion thereof, now the Greek word there is a different one, but the idea nonetheless is the same. The fashion thereof, he says, passes away. But those who do the will of God, they shall abide forever. John tells us to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, Notice the distinction that he makes between the world and the things that are in it. Love neither. Do not love the world nor the things that are in it. Because, he says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. It's of the devil. Now, that expression, pride of life, is very close to this fantasia. The expression pride of life in Greek means just the, the showbiz aspect of life, the glamour and the glitz, and the ostentation and the display. That, he says, is not of God. It is of the world. Indeed, it is of the devil. And here you have the king and his wife in their gorgeous royal robes. The procurator would have worn the procurator's scarlet robe, which was a, an ornate and beautiful robe. So many commanders, so many trumpeteers, civic dignitaries, military dignities, a large number in the gorgeous palace hall, and you've got the Apostle Paul with a chain. And like I said, last week in connection with Felix, he's the only man that's free. He's the only man there that really knows why he's living. The only man that really knows where he's going. And everyone else there doesn't. He will shortly be called a madman. But there's a, a profound way in which you can say that he's the only one there who isn't. But we'll see that in a moment. The, the Bible says in one of the Psalms, Sure, each man walks in a vain show. Each man walks in a vain show. There's a lot of vanity in the world today. I mean, vanity is there always. I know that. It's some people's besetting sin. But boy, I think we can say that the world today really loves itself. Really loves itself. And if you're unfortunate enough to look at a television screen long enough, you'll see how much people love themselves. Love their appearance. Love their display. Love their clothing just love themselves. It's an extremely narcissistic generation that we live in. Extremely narcissistic. And 
aspects of that are on show as Paul is called to speak. It's, um, there was a poem, there is a poem, by Rudyard Kipling, and it's called The Recessional. And he, he wrote the poem at the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria in 1897. And most poems written in commemoration of that event were actually written, written in anticipation beforehand. He wrote his afterwards. And what he had been so struck with was the the amount of display that went on, uh, how thoughtless a lot of it was, how full of jingoism and celebration the events were. Jingoism is a word that that, that is um, conveying profound nationalistic uh, pride. And in his poem, Recessional, he says this a few days afterward, the tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart, but still stands thine ancient sacrifice, a humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, he said, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Of course, the humble and the contrite heart is drawn from Psalm 51, which is a a thing that God delights in seeing, unlike our pomp and our pageantry. He likes the display of a contrite and humble heart. The expression, lest we forget, he takes from another part of the Old Testament where God warns Israel about forgetting her origin and where God took her from and how God had mercy upon her, lest she forget, lest you forget too. Uh, remember who you really are, me too, the rock from which we were hewn, and let's forget our pomp and pageantry and remember that God values a humble and a contrite heart. But Paul takes the opportunity, as he always takes the opportunity, and uh, I mentioned that last time, let me mention it again, take an opportunity when you've got it to speak on behalf of the Lord Jesus. He tells Agrippa, particularly he's addressing Agrippa about his past how he used to be so steeped in Jewish life, tradition, how zealous he was even to the point of persecuting Christians. He tells him about his conversion and he tells him about his calling. And as he's explaining all that, you'll notice that he draws out two very different responses from these two very different people in front of him. They're very different, Agrippa and uh, Festus, they're very different people in their mindset and in their culture. One is a, an irreligious Roman ruler who really couldn't care less about religion at all. And I'm sure you know plenty of people like that. You may, for I know, for all I know, even though you're here tonight, you may deep down be like that, that you don't really care much for religion at all yourself. It's interesting that his response is that you're beside yourself, Paul. Much learning has made you mad. On the other hand, beside him, there's this Jewish king who is religious, but essentially lapsed. Or at least his life is not at all consistent with the religion that he's still interested in, but he doesn't really own it somehow anymore. He maybe owns it culturally. It's his people's religion. I'm sure you can identify with that too. And he responds by saying, you almost persuade me, Paul, to be a Christian. Let's confine ourselves for the rest of our time to Festus. Now it's interesting to notice what he has to say and how he says it. You are beside yourself, he says to Paul. Much learning has made you mad. I want you to notice first when he says this because it is quite clearly an interruption. In fact, Paul isn't even addressing him. You'll notice all the way through the address that he's referring to King Agrippa. I'm pleased, he says, King Agrippa, to have this opportunity to answer for myself before you, singular, concerning all the things of which I'm accused, because you are an expert in all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews, and so I beg of you to hear me patiently. 
And then he goes on to speak as a Jew to a Jew. A Jewish Christian to a Jew who is not yet a Christian. But it's not Agrippa who responds. It's Festus. Festus simply breaks into Paul's speech by saying, Really? In our language, you're crazy. You're crazy. And your studies have driven you crazy. That's really what he says. And as well as interrupting Paul, it's useful to notice that he speaks literally in the Greek with a megaphone, a loud voice, a megaphone. He shouts. It's not just a, a comment that he makes. He doesn't turn round to Agrippa and say, this fellow's mad, or he, he doesn't even say quietly to Paul, you're mad, you're going crazy. He shouts it out because he wants everybody in the auditorium to hear it. That's his verdict, and he wants to make it known. The other thing to notice is just what he says. When he says you're beside yourself, it means you're raving. Your talk, Paul, is raving. What you're saying is mad speech, or as we would say today, crazy speech. And what's more, he says, your crazy speech is a sign that you are going mad. The second word there means a maniac. You're a maniac. It's the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament, but it's a very common word in classical Greek, at least in medical textbooks, where it is a, a classic medical term for someone who has just gone mentally. People who are crazed. You're raving. You're crazy, Paul, in your speech. And that's a sign that you are actually going crazy. You're talking crazy because you're going crazy. And he gives the reason for that. He says, it's because of your books and your learning. Now, it's an interesting thing that he said that, because that tells us, for one thing, that he must have noticed in Paul's speech that Paul was a learned and educated man. That reminds us of something else. That these speeches, as they are recorded in scriptures, are not fool speeches. It's the essence that's distilled for us. I mean, we don't know how long Paul spoke for. We don't know who he referenced. For example, when he speaks to the philosophers in Athens, there are two occasions in that speech, in Acts chapter 17, where he quotes Greek philosophers, which clearly indicates that he was familiar with these Greek philosophers. He was well-read in them. Now, Festus obviously had the impression that this man had studied letters. That's what the word means in the Greek. It's the word from which you get grammar, as in grammar school and the study of English grammar. You're a man of letters, but your letters, he says, have driven you mad. You've read far too much of the wrong kind of stuff because it is driving you crazy. Now, friends, sometimes what you say to somebody uh, says more about you than it does about the person that you're saying it to or the person that you're saying it about. Uh, that's true of all of us. What we say can say more about ourselves. When we're talking about people or saying something to people, we can be telling more about ourselves than we are about others, and I think that that's true about Festus. Take, for example, the way that he speaks. It makes you really wonder who, who the mad person is here. It isn't Paul who's lost control of himself. In fact, Paul turns round very calmly and says to Festus, I'm not, uh, I'm not mad, he says. The words that I'm speaking are words of truth and reason. You'll notice again that Paul, just as he did before Felix, is reasoning the Christian faith. Because our Christian faith, faith is a reasonable faith. It is a rational faith. We forget sometimes that you know, when people speak about faith, <clears throat> some foolish things are said about the Christian faith. I keep making a reference to some of the new atheists in this connection. Uh, Richard Dawkins always says that Christians just believe, that they just have faith, as though faith was 
just a determination to hold on to something being true, despite the fact that there was no evidence for it. Now, what a gross perversion of Christianity that is. Christianity is what you would call an evidence-based religion. Every single part of it. Even the resurrection itself, the the great event of our Saviour rising from the dead, is always spoken of in the New Testament as an authenticated event. It's never presented for people as just something they simply have to believe. I mean, God calls upon you to believe in the resurrection tonight. He calls upon me to believe in it as well. But it's not independent of the fact that it was a verified thing. That Paul can reference 500 people who were still, the greater part of them, he says, who are still alive, who saw the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an evidence-based faith. The people who lived in the New Testament, many of them have their names recorded. The Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. He did live. He did prophesy. He was tried by the Romans underneath Pontius Pilate's authority. He was crucified under the authority of Pontius Pilate. These things happened. That's who he was. And that's what happened to him. And you must make your decision regarding the Lord Jesus Christ on the basis of an evidence-based faith. The evidence which you either accept or reject. By the grace of God, may you accept it. No, Paul says, I am speaking the truth, and I am speaking reason, and I am speaking reason reasonably. Festus says, you're in a frenzy. No, I'm not in a frenzy. I'm sure Paul was relatively passionate. There's a good reason to be passionate. A preacher has more reason to be passionate than any other speaker. You take a speaker on the realm of politics, he may feel quite strongly about politics because he thinks that a conservative way of life is better than a liberal way of life. Another one may think that a liberal way of life is better than a conservative. Someone may urgently try to persuade you that independence for Scotland is the way forward and someone else may urgently try to persuade you that remaining in the Union is the way forward. But what cause is that comparable to the man who has a commission from God To tell you that your everlasting destiny depends on what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is a heaven to be won and a hell to be avoided. That you must be in the one place or another. How can you give a lecture about that? How can you dispassionately call on sinners, immortal sinners? How can you possibly confront them with that? without some element of passion and care and concern. Baxter, of course. Richard Baxter said that the gospel should be preached by dying men to dying men. That's who I am. I'm a dying man. I know that. I know I'm a dying man. And I know that you are dying men and women. And I know that you will never, ever, ever hear anything of comparable importance with the message that's presented to you here. I know that for a fact. But I'm not crazy. I may sometimes have passion, but I'm not crazy. And it may be convenient for Fest to say, you're crazy, Paul, and you're crazy because your learning is making you crazy. No, he says. That is not true at all. In fact, Paul could say, although he didn't say, are you sure it's not you who's crazy, Festus? You can't contain yourself. You had to burst out in the auditorium and scream out that I'm insane. What are you trying to hide? What truth is it inside yourself? Why must you give vent to an outburst like that? in the middle of my address that everyone else is listening to? It's a good question. Who really is mad in the auditorium? Christians are often accused of things that the accusers are really guilty of. I've seen quite a lot of um, clips on YouTube recently about 
the way people, uh, particularly neo-Marxists really, uh, are approaching Christians very aggressively, uh, sometimes pushing them and saying, you're full of hate. And, and the Christian just stands there and says, why am I full of hate? And they get pushed again, you're full of hate. Who's full of hate there? <laughs> who's full of hate there? I think it's quite obvious who's full of hate. It's the person who's revealing the hatred and pushing the Christian. Astonishing. Accusing the Christian of what the person is guilty of themselves. They can't see the irony. So he gives Paul what you would call a backhanded compliment. That he is actually well read and that he is able. But also he still thinks him raving. But it reveals much more than that too. The Bible tells us that the natural man thinks that the gospel is foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Right, So that's the truth. The truth of the Holy Spirit comes and the natural man does not receive it because he considers it foolishness. Now the Greek word behind foolishness there is the word from which you get moron. He thinks it's moronic. And you think to be, you have to be a moron to believe it. The natural man thinks that the message is moronic and he thinks that the messenger is a kind of moron. That's how the natural man responds to the gospel. The message. Well, you'll remember in connection with Gallio in Corinth, when, um, when he discovered what was going on, he said, this is just a question of words and names and your law. He says, and I don't want to know. Now, that's not a million miles away from where this man Festus is himself. After all, he's listening to Paul, and he hears Paul talking about visions, revelations, prophets, deliverance from Satan, a special prophet who is dying and rising again, and this prophet after his rising, bringing the light of the truth and personal liberation to Jews and Gentiles all over the world. Festus is effectively saying, I can't take any more of that. What are you talking about? That's not the world I know. It's got nothing to do with the world I know. I know that even my people in Rome once used to worship gods, but we've left all that behind. Our Lord now is Caesar. And yes, Caesar was becoming Lord. Uh, as I mentioned again a couple of weeks ago, Caesar is Lord was the, the new saying that was being enforced on people. It was being enforced on Christians too, to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. Their response is Jesus is Lord. If you didn't say Caesar is Lord, you could be executed because the state was becoming everything. Those of you who are alive to what's happening in this country will acknowledge that the state is becoming more and more powerful. It's uh, intruding into areas that used to be traditionally zealously reserved for the family as an institution and for the church as an institution. These are your safeguards in terms of your individual freedoms, the freedoms of the family and of the church. And once the, the state starts to intrude and dictate in all these realms, Caesar again becomes Lord. And you will have to bow before the state and you will receive everything from the state and you will be dependent upon everything for the state. Everything. Every penny you receive, every gift that they choose to give or choose to withhold until you acknowledge them in the right way. That is, that is what they call history repeating itself. And people have referred to history repeating itself. Guess why? Because history does repeat itself. When the book of the Revelation speaks of the beast coming out of the sea, the beast is Rome, the beast is the empire, the beast is secular government, which takes the church, the lamb, along with the beast, with its two horns, takes the church, an apostate church, into an alliance with itself, and exercises its control over all the families of the earth. That is the anti-Christian system. A state and a false church in alliance one with the other. You've got to watch for that progression all the time. 
And as far as Festus is concerned, the only empire that matters is the empire of Rome. The only Lord that matters is Caesar as Lord. The one who bestows all righteousness, all law and all their gifts. He doesn't want to know about an empire in heaven, about a, a Lord Jesus Christ who is judge of the living and the dead. That's fantasia. That's phantom stuff. That's the fantastic stuff. The stuff that he knows is the political world of the here and the now. As far as he's concerned, well, this is just all foolish. But is that how you dismiss Christianity? Do you think somehow that Christianity is just a foolish message? I mean, what do you think of it? What do you think of the teaching that this universe is actually designed and made? Not here by random chance. What do you think of the teaching that we were originally made upright but have fallen because of sin? What do you think of the teaching that the main purpose in this world's history is to save a people out of their sin and mystery, misery? And that God intervened in the most special way possible by coming into this world himself in flesh 2,000 years ago and dying to bear the guilt of a people. What do you think of the theory that that is how the world is to be understood today as a battleground between good and evil where the gospel is gathering the people of God? What do you think of the theory that world history will come to an end not because the sun grows and makes the earth hot or because the earth cools but because God brings it to an end and he brings us all before a judgment seat to determine our eternal destiny in heaven and hell. Is that the truth to you, or is it foolishness? Which is it? Which is it? If you think it's foolishness, you think I'm a fool for preaching it to you. I don't care what you think of me, really. If you think of me as a fool, so be it. But that's what it means. You most certainly think I'm wasting my time and wasting my life propagating a message that you believe is absolutely ridiculous. But is it? Is it? For Festus, Paul was a, an enthusiast, a raving enthusiast or a fanatic. But that's what they said of Christ too. Strangely enough, when the Lord began preaching... His relatives, now I don't know if you're aware of this, if you're not it might be a surprise to you, but in Mark 3, 21, we're told that his relatives went into the house to take him out of where he was preaching because they were saying he is beside himself. It's another Greek word for madness, which means, um, well it actually, it actually means, it's from where you get ecstasy, to stand outside of yourself, it means that you're Divided into two people, basically. He's beside himself. That's what they said. When D.L. Moody uh, began to preach the gospel, they called him Crazy Moody because of his zeal. He, he couldn't bear to see a soul that could still be lost. And he felt when he met someone that he had to speak to them about the Lord and about their soul. Crazy Moody. That's what they used to call him. I remember myself on a lesser scale when I was converted and I used to play in a band at the time and I remember telling the, the people who played in the band with me that I had been converted and I was as well saying that I had come from Mars and I know that they thought that I, I just can't have been well. When Lot preached and told the inhabitants of Sodom that destruction was imminent, we're told that when he preached that to his sons-in-law, his daughter's husbands, that they seemed, he seemed to them as a man that joked, mocked in the King James Version. The word means just to joke, as though his warnings were an act or a performance. Saying, what's, what's wrong with him? Talking about vengeance and God and fire from heaven. I mean, the sun is rising over Sodom today as it rises every day. Not so. Not so. Christians can appear foolish to you. Christianity can appear foolish. But that's not the truth. 
And let me just close by asking you a few questions. In terms of being crazy or being mad and much learning driving you mad, does it ever give you pause for thought that the most able people on the planet, male and female, have been people who have believed in Christ, or at least in God? When you consider all the major advancements that have been made in the history of the world, you will find them made by those who believed in God. And I'm including science there. Just look it up for yourself and discover how many of the world's leading scientists have always been theists or Christians. Ask yourself when a Christian appears zealous or when a minister appears over-animated, is it not possible that they may have a reason to be like that? Because if you can't get motivated about a message to do with heaven and hell, you can't get motivated about anything. Ask yourself too, is a Christian really mad for renouncing the world's favour and praise, its applause and its admiration, in order to serve a faithful true and enduring God? Is a Christian really mad for that? Or again, just ask yourself the old question, is he a fool or is he mad who renounces what he can't keep in order to gain what he can never lose? Or ask yourself very simply, who is mad in here tonight? Is it the Christian Or is it you? May the Lord bless these thoughts. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, what indeed does it profit us to gain the whole world and to lose our soul? What does it profit us too if we were to read all that has ever been written and that can be read, if we have not read the only book that will make us wise. And we pray, O Lord, to learn to use time while we have it. We are conscious coming towards the end of another year that our lives are hastening on, swifter than a weaver's shuttle, One day hardly begins when it is over and one week passes into another and the years are almost as quick. We pray not to harden and not to put off the matter of our salvation. We pray to recognise where the truth really lies in this world. There are so many competing voices and people talk of their truth and other people's truth. Help us to discern the one voice that has always made sense and that always speaks deep down to our conscience and commends itself to our reason. And lead us to the Lord, the way, the truth, and the life. In his name we pray. Amen. Of course, there's, a, there's another man listening to the Apostle as he's speaking, and he's responding quite differently. We'll consider him next Lord's Day evening. Let's um, close our service singing in Psalm 74. <clears throat> and at verse 20. Unto thy covenant have respect, for earth's dark places be full of the habitations of horrid cruelty. O let not those that be oppressed return again with shame. Let those that poor and needy are give praise unto thy name. Do thou, O God, arise and plead the cause that is thine own. Remember how thou art reproached still by the foolish one and 
That is so true today. The name of God is being reproached by fools on all sides. Don't forget the voice of those that are thine enemies, of those the tumult ever grows that do against thee rise. It's good to know the psalmist knows these things. God knows these things. We pray these things, and God will intervene on account of these things. The last four stanzas we stand to sing.